Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist, Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right, so this summer we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages and how the choices that they made in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., might be able to help you with your choices for your own first pages. Okay, so today I'm very, very happy to have one of my favorite authors and people, Julie Carrick-Dalton. She's going to be talking to us about her most recent novel, The Last Beekeeper, which just came out in March. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Julie Carrick-Dalton is a Boston-based author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song. Named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, USA Today, Parade, and a whole bunch of others, and an Amazon editor's pick for best books of the month. She is also a Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street Novel Incubator alum, and she is a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis. When she isn't writing, she is still very busy, digging in her garden, skiing, kayaking, and walking her dogs. All right, Julie, we actually have you indoors today, which you are not usually indoors, um, but this is a gift to our listeners. Can you give us a quick summary of The Last Beekeeper? Sure, thank you. So The Last Beekeeper is a, a near future novel. It's just like a smidge in the future, so it's a very recognizable world. And it's about a beekeeper and his daughter and the relationship as the world's pollinator population collapses, which of course then sends the world into some agricultural and economic um, chaos. So it's really a story about um, relationships set against the backdrop of climate change. And it's about um, you know, found family, secrets, redemption, um, speaking truth to power. But most importantly, it's about hope. It's about a relentless hope when you think there shouldn't be room for it. Which is really important in climate fiction, right? I mean, Absolutely. I know that's that's something that, that climate fiction writers talk about all the time. Um, and we can see the importance of the relationships in those in these very first pages that you're going to read to us. OK, let's hear them. Yeah, so I'm going to start with the prologue, which we can get into why I did the dreaded prologue when everyone says don't do it, but I'm going to start with the prologue. I should tell you that the book is a dual timeline narrative. It goes back and forth when my main character, Sasha, is a child and an adult. So we're going to meet her in this prologue, and she's um, a child. My bees will survive, Sasha promised herself as she crouched in the dirt, watching them die. A worker bee hauled a dead sibling to the opening of the hive and launched the body onto a pile of her lifeless sisters in the dirt below. Why are they dying? Sasha whispered to her father, his head so close to hers, his whiskers brushed her cheek. He rubbed his face with stiff arthritic hands and crawled closer to the hive. Come here. She put a hand on the pine box. He put a hand on the pine box and Sasha did the same. What do you feel? He asked. Wood? The smooth grain gave slightly under her fingernails as she pressed harder. What else? The warmth brewing inside the hive overpowered the shade cast by the oak branches. It, it's hot and buzzing. Bees hum at the exact pitch of a G note, like on mom's piano, her father said. Pipe smoke infused in his shirt, mixing with lavender in the breeze. But how do they know the note? She pressed her ear to the side of the hive, vibrations tickling the inner parts of her ear. They just know. They communicate with signals only bees understand. With her cheeks still flushed to the hive, Sasha looked at her father and blinked three slow, deliberate blinks, scrunching her eyes tight each time. What are you doing, he asked, sending a signal only you can understand again 
She stared at him and blinked three times. His furrow, he furrowed his brows of concentrating. I love you too. Her father placed one hand on the hive and the other on Sasha's shoulder, his calloused skin chafing her sunburn. The hum disoriented her until she felt as if she were hovering above the ground. The buzzing grew louder, filling her skull, telegraphing secret signals down her neck and arms to warm her fingertips. That note is part of you now. His words hung in the viscous air. It's a huge responsibility to be tuned to the pitch of a bee. For a moment, Sasha could see the air, the particles, the sound waves, breath moving like liquid around her. She parted her lips to taste the sizzle of lavender and wax. A large chirp startled Sasha and she pulled her ear away from the hive. This is Lawrence. Her father answered his phone and walked toward the farmhouse, leaving Sasha alone with her bees and the vibrations destined to tremble under her skin long after the hives fell silent. That's the end of the prologue, but I want to lead you into the first chapter of Sasha's adult voice. She's 22. Sasha stepped off the sour smelling bus, hoping the taste of chaff in the air would guide her back to the farmhouse. Every night since her father had gone to prison, she had visualized walking up the sagging porch stairs, retracing the familiar path down the hall, fingertips recounting each dent in the scuffed chair rail, every flourish in the wrought iron heat vents. She hadn't been this close to her childhood home in 11 years, but it had never felt further away. So I'll leave it there and then we can, we can chat. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. So I actually, a number of people, probably the majority of people that I've been interviewing so far for this lovely passages of summer, um, have used prologues. Really? <laughs> so why did you choose? Yeah. Why did you, even though it's supposed to be this, you know, you know, thing that agents and editors don't like, I've had a lot of prologues. So why did you use a prologue? Ironically, I did it at my editor's suggestion. I had started yes. at chapter one with Sasha getting off the bus and returning home. And that um, little snippet in the prologue was a flashback that happens later in the story. But, um, but my editor really liked that moment between Sasha and her father, because I've come to think of that moment as Sasha's origin story. It's the moment, like if, if, it was, if she were a superhero, this would be the moment, you know, her origin story. Yeah. It's, the, it's this, um, the idea of her father tuning her to the pitch of a bee is something that she carries with her for the rest of her life. And she believes this as a child. Like she actually thinks she's tuned to the pitch of the bee and carries this responsibility. As an adult, she comes to see this differently, but it changed her and shaped everything that happens after she, that she believes she has this very special connection to the bees. So I thought that was a really great idea to put it in the front. And also the shape of the prologue, it, it contains so many parts of the whole shape of my novel in it. Um, if you look at the, uh, the the beats in the prologue, it really mirrors the beats in the novel in a lot of ways. Great. And it it well, it's it's the emotional core of the book is her relationship with her father. Um, and that's what we get from the very beginning. We get drawn into that. And then we find out later that he went to prison. And, and I think at the beginning of the first chapter, after only after we find out that relationship and understand that relationship do we kind of gasp? <gasps> oh no, he's in prison. And I don't think you would have been able to get that emotional effect without the prologue. I agree um, 100%. Yeah, because we need to see that closeness between them and that sweetness between them instead of just assuming that the usual daughter-father relationship. 
Um, other things that I love here, she asks, why are they dying? And he never answers her. I love that. Was that, why did you choose to do that? Because there isn't necessarily one answer to that question. And also I set this in the future and I don't want to pretend that I'm going to, you know, we'll know the answer in the future either. There's a lot of reasons bees are dying, but it's not one answer. There's not one solution. So I, I think leaving it open is just a realistic, there is no one specific answer. Yeah, yeah. And the effect though on the reader is that it, it offers actually some suspense and tension because we're expecting the answer. And because it, it just feels like a very smart move and it does feel like the like it's unanswerable that these things are far more complex than we would wish them to be. Um, and so instead of going there, he goes into this discussion of the um, the the hum of the of the bees. Uh, and so I just think it, it leads us forward in a way that otherwise you wouldn't have gotten. So it works. It works in many ways. Yeah, and there um, are. He does, and it's funny because I hadn't thought about it this way. But there are many answers to why they're be they're dying, and there are no answers yeah. to why they're dying. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and you are always so good with sensory details. So I think our uh, listeners can hear that in these pages. Um, is the exact pitch of G, is that an actual thing? Is that true? It is true. And I loved when I came across that because I keep bees myself. So I know a good bit about it. He's not an expert. So I did a lot of research. And when I came across that, I was like, oh, this has to go in the book. And that's where, you know, in the, later in the story, in, yeah, I guess in chapter three, you find out she's a, she's a musician. She plays violin. And I grew up playing in orchestras, playing violin. And the vibrations of the, the, of the violin, and there's a gene string on a violin. And I was like, oh, this is too good. This is too, you know, the, you know, I, when you play an, a string instrument, you feel the vibrations in your fingertips, you feel it in the wood of a violin up against your, your chin and your shoulder and in the hand that draws the bow across the string. So the vibrations kind of fill you up, not just the sound, but the, the sensation of vibrations, which is very similar to the sensation of being surrounded by bees. So it seemed like a fantastic like thing to, you know, to really blow up this idea of the G note that the bees hum to. Yeah. And so we're also learning something at the same time as we're reading. And so I know that readers love that. Um, so, so you're offering that to us as well. And then the response that it's a great responsibility that she's in tune with this pitch. And that leads us into the stakes of the whole book. It feels like there's just, there's so much weighted on what is going to be happening in the book. And we have both a front story, it feels like, and a back story. Though really, really they're both important. So the fate of the bees um, is a worldwide issue um, that continues. There are no easy fixes, there are no easy answers. It kind of functions as the backstory in the book. It's important, it's deadly important, but we also need to have the front story that matters with her and her father and what's happening with her father. And so you actually need to have both. I think if you just had one, it, it just simply, it wouldn't work as a novel. So you have those two layers on top of each other that creates a lot of tension. Um, and you've always had that in this book, right? Yeah, it's always been the two things, the bees and the relationship. And sometimes they're in tension with each other. Sometimes what is best for the bees is not best for for Sasha and her, for her relationship with her father. In fact, that comes, you know, that that the suspense of that mounts is she has to decide sometimes between 
father and bees or her, for her own sanity or her own well-being and her relationship with her father. So these things are intention all the time. It's not one, one solution doesn't answer both problems. And so that's always a great literary device when you have two things you want to happen, but if one happens, mm-hmm. the other can't. So that's always a good, a good device. Right. Yes. And so, and always for writers to remember that that context that broader social context or political context or, or worldwide context, whatever they want to do, um, laying on your personal story um, with that context is just going to give your, your book or short story, whatever you're working on, so much more interest um, and complexity. Um, so I would highly encourage authors to reach for that. Um, and then we also have the foreshadowing of after the hives fell silent, at the very end, and it's a wonderful way that you end the prologue. And we already have this, we know that the bees are dying, but we don't know, again, we don't know the answer of how or why, we don't know when. So again, we already have these questions that are carrying us forward into the book. And then in the first chapter, so I actually asked her to read, she was just gonna read the prologue, but then I was like, no, I want you to read into the first chapter because I wanted people to see how she transitions from one to the next. And really what you do is I think you transition with those questions leading us forward. And so you don't have to do a lot of work when you make that mini year jump, right? You just use the white space and the chapter division to get yourself there. Yeah, I feel like this is my second novel that I've written with um, dual timelines. And I always think about the transition from timing is you need some sort of it's a very small baton to hand off when you move from one timeline so that it's not so jarring, whether it's like an emotion, uh, an image, um, a question, that when you move from one timeline to the other, you need to bring your reader with you, not just drop them somewhere else. And in this case, you know, she's at the farmhouse with her father and, you know, they seem to be happy and things, you know, or, you know, maybe tense, but, um, you know, you get a sense of their world. And then all of a sudden she's being dropped off by a bus going back to the farm that she hasn't been to in 11 years. So that, but it's the same house and why, you know, so those questions like what happened in between, where was she? Why hasn't she been there? And her father's in prison, you know, so there's these questions pull you into the next chapter. And so, yeah, we get the dissonance of kind of the sweetness of this earlier scene, the natural scene, and then we get the 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 smoke of the bus. Um, and so that dissonance really is working for you. But again, that baton that you were talking about of going back to her home. And this also gives reason as to, okay, why is she starting the first chapter here? And it's because she's going back to her childhood home and she hasn't been there in 11 years. Um, And so it's a perfect reason we know exactly, oh, this is why we're starting here. We know we're in good hands with the author. Um, And also you tell us again that the father has gone to prison. So (laughs) we're like, no. (laughs) I mean, everything everything seems to have gone to disaster in this very short period of time. And so then we just read in between to kind of catch up. Um, did you always have that kind of dissonance between the two uh, timelines, the, the the huge change in between, and then we need to read forward and, and keep reading to see what happened in between? Yeah, I didn't write the in-between part. Um, I wanted there to be kind of two... Well, what I love is that both of the um, timelines are happening in the same geographic location at this farmhouse. But the farmhouse is very different. It looks different 11 years later because it's been abandoned and unoccupied for 11 years. 
Um, and so I wanted there to be, you know, dissonance is a great word because it's the same place, but the feeling's really different. There's, a, you know, like a more of a darkness in the second timeline, but it changes a little bit. Like I think in her childhood timeline, we start with this idyllic father-daughter relationship. She's, you know, running wild in the woods, you know, tending bees, gardening, picking flowers. And that timeline so slowly degrades a little bit as we get closer to the decline of the bees. The adult timeline picks up at a very low point. She's been on her own for 11 years adrift in a, in a, in a state foster system. And she's returning to this abandoned farmhouse and is rebuilding her life. So it's like one trajectory is going like down and one's going up and they're crossing each other. And so as the reader is watching her childhood come apart, watching her rebuild an adult life simultaneously. And I think that works really well because if we don't know what Sasha's losing, you know, this relationship with her father and this idyllic home, yeah. if we don't see her losing it, we don't know why she wants it back so much or what's at stake for her to get something, something similar to this family she once had. Yeah. And I mean, it is important that we see her childhood as being idyllic, but it's not a hundred percent because again, we have that the bees or dying, that something yeah. is going away. Because I think otherwise the reader would feel that it was really quite false. Yeah. Um, that the world is too perfect and then we just kind of, you know, drive a plane crash into it <laughs> and, and bomb it. And, and, and that might seem like an easy way to get the reader's attention, but it will, it will feel very manipulative and unfair. Yeah, it's like comparatively um, idyllic <laughs> compared, yes. to the, compared to her adult life. But yeah, it definitely starts at a moment of, of crisis. You know, we're literally seeing the bees die right in front of our face. Yeah. Now, place is always very important to your writing and particularly rural places. Can you talk about how you use that in this book? Um, I know your editor early on with an early version of this book, you were trying to write some more city scenes. It didn't <laughs> yes. quite work for you. This is true. And I know you read this version of it. So um, my initial version of this book, Sasha as a child was on the farm with her father. And then her adult timeline, I had her living in an apartment in this city, in this kind of, you know, altered, altered world. There's, you know, it's, you know, kind of dystopian in that because of all the agricultural and economic collapse, there's like high unemployment, there's, you know, more political unrest. And so she's living in a city and we see the unrest around her. We see the, you know, homelessness and the um, disparity going on in the world. And um, I was trying to have her longing to be back at the farm and longing to be in nature, longing to be near her garden. And finally, my editor is like, what's with all this longing? Just get her out there. Just put her <laughs> back out in the nature. And, and she basically said, she's like, city writing is not your strength to me. And I was like, oh, somebody needed to tell me that. Thank you. And she was right. I had her, I thought I was creating this complicated, angsty character by having her somewhere she didn't want to be longing to be home. And really, she just needed to like get off her butt and go home. So I packed her and these other characters up. They all packed their bags and moved out to the farm eventually. Because there are other characters that show up on this at this farm. And so for me, it gave me this opportunity to show the farm in two different, very different lights. The farm of her childhood, they had electricity and running water and her father and this relative safety of having a parent there and someone who loved her. And then when she comes home at 22, the farm's been abandoned for a decade, but it's been taken over by squatters. So there's not only is it a different home, but like other people have claimed her home. It's run down, the roof is leaking, there's no water, electricity. 
So she's starting over in a familiar place in very unfamiliar circumstances with unfamiliar people. So it was a chance to take that same house and put a different you know, spotlight on it from a different direction. And a um, fun little fun fact background is that farm is my grandparents' farmhouse that I wrote that farm. And it was a very rural farmhouse. Like even to the day my grandparents sold it when I was 17, they never had hot running water. We used to have to heat water in a uh, on the stove and put, pour water into a galvanized steel tub. We didn't have a shower or a bathtub. We literally had to heat water to take a bath. This is out in the um, rural, like Appalachian corner of Maryland. And um, they didn't have a telephone. They only heat the house with a wood stove. It was very rustic. So drawing on that house allowed me to create the farm, you know, that had a um, kind of this rundown, but, but filled with love kind of feeling. Yeah. And and the, the beginning of the book just exudes nostalgia and a longing for something that is lost. And so, again, that has the two layers. It has the personal loss of the house and of her family, but then for the reader, too, the larger loss of the world and what has happened in the world. Um, and so it just has, again, that complexity I love. Um, did you always have her communicating with him and the three blinks? It, can you repeat that half when, when she when she oh, the three blanks. With it. yeah I said three blanks and I'm like blanks um <laughs> no no I added that in there when I wrote the prologue because yeah. um I wanted to create a moment like very simple very childlike but profound that would set the tone for their relationship is I love you like mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on there's you know something mysterious and scary, but like I love you and you love me, and that's where we're going to start. And that so to me that felt like a really like grounding place to start the book. And are you able to continue that small gesture later in the book? Yes, and so uh, yeah, so and it, it shows up in ways that only only he can understand. There's a um I don't I won't I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a a big, you know, kind of climactic scene in the childhood version of the book towards the end where Sasha as a young child has to make a very, very difficult decision that affects her and her father. Um, and this is not a big spoiler because this is, she hints at this very early, but she feels partially responsible for her father going to prison. And whether she is or isn't, you know, you'll figure that out, but she feels she carries this guilt. And in the moment that she does something that she thinks and, you know, with the final like period on the end of the sentence that sent her father to prison, she did it knowing what she was doing. And she looked at him and blinks three times to like let him know, like, I see you and I know what I'm doing, um, but I love you. And I think that that like it's, it kind of frames their the childhood story a little bit. And I think that it's something because there's also a lot of things about bees communicating with each other in this book. And she, in a lot of ways, as a child, fancies herself as a bee. And this is kind of her way of transmitting information to her father's is these three blinks. And so you were able to um, continue to make discoveries as you continue to work on and revise the book and then use those discoveries. Because adding this prologue, was it pretty late in the process when you added this prologue? It was very late. It was um, probably the last big revision of the book before we went into like line edits. Um, And once my editor suggested that it just I was like oh yes this is exactly what I need because 
it, it just came, uh, gave a, an, a kind of an emotional framework to enter the story of, um, but also I think it was really important for the reader to understand why Sasha felt so connected to the bees. It wasn't just because her dad kept bees. It was more to right. it than that. So yeah. And then I, I tease elements of this um, all through the book, the idea of her, she is you know, a musician. And when she gets a little older, she literally goes out to the hive to tune her violin to the sound of the bees and as an adult you know when she plays it she as she um you know believes she has a perfect pitch inside her to tune instruments mm -hmm. because she internalized the pitch of the bees so that all of this just washes through the whole book a lot of the things in this prologue you will see over and over in the book that's great so allowing yourself to continue to discover as you revise and to continue being open to those discoveries and use those um and then you just find these these wonderful rich things that much must have deepened the book incredibly okay yeah. we're gonna have to let these guys go so they can get back to their own first pages but for everyone else you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com you can subscribe there for updates you can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page including episodes from our past two writing challenges we did a 50-day challenge and a 31-day challenge there's a lot of information up there for writers you can also find all of these on any of your podcast platforms and if you like what we're doing please follow rate and review our podcast so that we can find other listeners all right julie one last question if you have any advice to give our authors about their own first pages what would you tell them well i would say this is something to be thinking about after you've already written the whole manuscript not when you're you know first putting pen to paper but i love when the opening of a book is in conversation with the closing of a book. Like if you look at the opening sentences of a book and then look at the end and how do they, does it maybe answer a question that you posed in the opening pages of the book? It feels to me a very satisfying way to end the book. So if you've already completed a manuscript and you kind of know where it's going to end and you're having trouble with the opening, maybe look at the very end of that book and what is the question that you would need to be asking in the beginning of the book. So they, they are it feels like a complete package. Have you found right, you exactly. Oh, I love that. Wonderful. Okay, everyone. Look to your endings to sometimes to find your beginnings and look for those questions again. Okay, thank you so much, Julie. And thank you, everyone else. Let's get to your desk and get your own first pages. Happy writing. There isn't nothing here at all.